0: John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. If you were here during our Good Friday sermon, uh, during our Good Friday service, you heard a message which was to some of you probably somewhat strange in that we focused on the political aspects of the crucifixion. That is, John highlights certain things that the other gospel writers don't highlight to the same degree, although they're present in all the gospels. He highlights the idea that the Jews rejected the Lord and chose Caesar instead, and that through the actions of Pontius Pilate, Christ was revealed to be the Messiah of God, the Christ of God, the anointed one to sit on the throne of his father, David. And so often when we come to Good Friday, we are looking at things like the atonement of the cross or the wrath that was removed and satisfied at the cross. And so this last Good Friday, we almost didn't mention that at all because John highlights something different. And again today, we are going to see something that John is saying about what Jesus' resurrection accomplished, and that is this chief thing, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God, that he has become our brother, and that we have become sons and daughters of the Father. This is exactly what John is actually highlighting in his entire gospel. So if you remember back to Friday, if you were here with us, you may remember we talked about the entire Bible, and we we started at the beginning, and then we got to John's gospel, and then we summarized John's gospel, and then we saw what John was highlighting in the crucifixion. We're going to do something very similar today. First, we're going to look at the themes of adoption and uh, atonement Being unified in John's gospel. There are major themes in John's gospel. There's major ways to understand it. We're going to look at just one of those themes. And then we're going to move from that to the words of Christ himself as he says to Mary, a message that he has to give to his disciples. Now, if you were here three years ago, uh, you may remember that we actually read this portion And one of the things that we saw in that portion was his identity as a gardener. That his, this poetic symbolism of what Mary thinks he looks like. Today, we're going to only very briefly mention that, that we saw on Friday that Christ is the last Adam. But today, we're going to be focusing on the view of John's gospel as Christ being the mediator and our Redeemer. That is the one who brings us back into family, the one who brings the disciples to the Father. And then after this, we're going to look at how does the resurrection produce belief? That is, the resurrection is highlighted by John in this way, and he says something throughout his whole gospel, giving summary statements and giving reminders of past events, and he says that when he was raised, they believed. We're going to look at why John's given us this. If you were here in the Sunday School Hour, we talked a little bit about apologetics and evidence. That's exactly what we're going to see. Not just an evidence-based or a presupposition-based, that is a truth-based, but here we're going to look at what Christ does in establishing the relational basis for Christianity. That is, it's not just a series of facts. It's not just things that we hold in tension until we can muster up belief. It's actually the announcement that you're being invited to join the family of God. So today, objections to the doctrine of the wrath of God abound. If you have ever read anything in popular culture, even large branches of the church deny the existence of the wrath of God against sin and against sinners. If you were here during our time of Lent, we mentioned only briefly Psalm 5 that God loathes sinners. See, loathe is a very strong word, it's a word pregnant with meaning. It's a word that says God doesn't just tolerate sin for a time in men and then judge them, He's actively against what they are participating in, who they are as people. And in fact, we're going to see that in just a minute in John's gospel. But the objections that are raised against the atonement, against what is called the substitution of Christ, those objections are often presented on philosophical grounds. That is, people go on and they say, Well, Jesus commands us to forgive our neighbors, and he commands us to forgive our neighbors whether they apologize or not. And, brothers and sisters, that is true. You have to forgive. However, it is not the same thing to say that the forgiveness which exists on a human level is the type of forgiveness and quality of forgiveness that exists from man to God. You see, we cannot make, man, we cannot make God in our image. He made us in his image. We reflect certain things about God, but not everything about us is reflective of him. For example, as we're going to see in just a minute, there's a relationship between earthly fathers and their children, but that relationship can't be projected back up to God. It doesn't work that way. These are shadows. That is the substance. And so the scriptures present an entirely different picture of the notion of atonement. That is, the atonement is not just the primary thing that happens in the cross, but rather the atonement is inextricably linked. It's tied to every other blessing and reality in the Christian faith. And I believe that this is John's extreme purpose, is to show these two things, that atonement makes adoption possible. Often the objection to the wrath of God is also not just forgiveness, but it's also focused on adoption. The argument goes kind of like this. When I adopt a child, I don't first punish that child before receiving them in my family, right? So if God adopts us and the New Testament tells us that we were adopted by God, then how can we say that God first punishes sin before adoption? It's not necessary. What they're doing is they're projecting a human relationship onto the divine and this is impossible. Not only is it impossible logically and philosophically, it's also against the argumentation. It's against the whole aim and thrust of the scriptures. They're presenting something of the wisdom of God being made manifest such that the atonement, like a a flower blooming at the break of spring, explodes into a thousand petals of grace's. The atonement accomplishes something in John's gospel. That's what I want to show you today. John does this by showing that atonement makes adoption possible by showing that they're each related to belief. That is, atonement, belief, and adoption are all linked. They're, they're braided together like a strong rope. So we're going to look at the gospel of John. We're going to summarize just a few parts of it, and then we're going to move on to our reading. In his prologue, John summarizes the gospel letter. He says, essentially, that the story in his gospel is this, that those who believed in Christ became sons of God. This is the story of the gospel of John. John summarizes this in verse 13. But right here, we have to notice something, that this theme of adoption at the very beginning does not begin with man, but rather it begins with God. Think about this for a second the children that you have or or know or y- indeed you yourself you did not come into existence based on your own desire and in fact you weren't even conscious uh conscious before you were born and in fact beyond that your conscious uh mind doesn't really even emerge until years later i mean you have conscious mind but you don't have the sort of mind that you have years and years into your life. Five years, six years, seven years. It's amazing that kindergartners begin to ask deeply philosophical questions. I remember having these sorts of thoughts when I was eight and nine and 10, and I know I wasn't having those thoughts at four and three. Although I have vague memories of four, five, and six, I have extremely good memories of what I wanted to do, my intention, my will. But before I was born, I did not have a personality. I did not have an active mind. I was not causing myself to come into being. And that is exactly what John says in these verses. This is the summary of his gospel, or a summary of his gospel, in the prologue. So John doesn't begin writing the account of Jesus like you would if you were taking a film of it. He actually produces a summary in the introduction. It's kind of like, if you've ever seen Star Wars... Remember the words that come in the screen? All those words tell the backstory. It would be like if in Star Wars it told you the end of the movie and then you could just watch that and you'd be done. That's not how it works, but that's how it works in John's gospel. John is giving a summary of what everything is going to be discussing in John's gospel, in his gospel, and he does that at the very onset. If you were here at Good Friday, we saw how verse 11 came true. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Pilate offered them the king of the Jews, and they said, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. That is exactly what is taking place in 11. But look at what takes place in verse 12. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if you just put a period there and you end with that thought, to those who believe they have the right, then you may think in, a, in the wrong way that all I have to do to become a child of God is believe. That if I just believe, then I have the right to become a child of God. So I can create my own right to become a child of God if I just believe. Brothers and sisters, that's not what John says. Look at the very next verse. He says, these children were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is John saying not of blood? He's saying that those who became children of God weren't descendant. It wasn't based on their bloodline. It wasn't based on them being a Jew or being them uh, or them being a Gentile. It was not based on them being a Roman citizen or someone on the outer territories. It was not based on blood. It was not based on the will of the flesh that is someone didn't just manifest their own belief, but rather that they were born because of God's will, just exactly the same as when your parents come together to create a child. That It was their action, it was their activity that, that gave rise to that event. You didn't cause your own existence. So as John the Baptist is teaching in John chapter 3, he connects the state of belief and the removal of wrath. Look at this closely. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. He's he's indicating something. Whoever believes has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son—that's not different than believing, as we'll see in a minute. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is in earlier in the chapter when John, uh, when Jesus is speaking um, to uh, Nicodemus, he says something to the effect of this: that you know the the Son comes into the world. John 3.16, because God loves the world, he sent his son. But then he goes on to say, he didn't come in for judgment, but this is the judgment that they loved darkness rather than light. That's exactly what John the Baptist is saying here in John's gospel. There are two different people here. John the Baptist is saying that those who do not believe, the wrath of God still remains on them. How can it remain if it's not already in them? So the belief or unbelief the response to the gospel is not a bringing of wrath, but rather the wrath is already there. So look very closely at this idea. John the Baptist is not saying that my belief accomplishes a removal of wrath, but rather exactly the opposite, as we're going to see. These three ideas, adoption, atonement, and belief, all woven together. We're going to see this extremely closely at looking at some of the words that John the Apostle uses in his gospel. Throughout the entire gospel, he uses two different words, brothers, to describe the siblings of Jesus. Jesus had siblings. He describes those in various places in his gospel. So, brothers is a term that John the Gospel writer, John the Apostle, uses to describe siblings, but disciples is a term that he uses to describe the followers. Of Jesus Christ, those who were the 12 apostles, the women who attended their company, and anyone else who joined their ranks and lived with them during that time. After the wedding of Cana, John says that his disciples were believing, but he does not use the term brothers. Look closely, John 2, 11, He says, Jesus did this at Galilee, that is, he turned water into wine, a miracle. He manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples. Now, see, this is not just saying that there were two groups of people. John is highlighting everyone and where they stand. His disciples believe in him. At the Feast of Booths later on in John, brothers and disciples are still extremely distinct. Notice the lack of faith of his brothers. In John 7, it says, verse 3, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John, the gospel writer, interprets why they said this. He says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So notice these two passages, John describes disciples at the wedding of Cana and brothers. And then again here, his brothers who don't believe in him, says they, he says that they should go, uh, he should go do these works so that the disciples will see. But through the glorification of Jesus, everything changes. Now, why have we done all this work, all this hard textual analysis in John? Why have we studied the text so closely? It's so that you don't miss something that is infinitely beautiful and precious and sweet, is what Jesus says in this passage. And we finally are going to come to it. Upon the cross, Jesus gives to Mary another son. But think about this for a second. Jesus had brothers. Why does he do this? He then gives John a mother that is his mother. If you were here on Good Friday, we read this, but we didn't talk about it for this reason. I wanted to talk about it today. Christ says, behold, and this behold is said twice. It's a twofold beholding. And this suggests somewhat of a prophetic or spiritual meaning of what's going on. Verse 26 of John 19, he says, John tells us, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Verse 27, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. What is Jesus doing here? Is Jesus merely providing for the physical and monetary needs of his mother as he's now being removed from, from life? No, Jesus actually knows that he's going to be resurrected. So it's not like he's executing a will here. He's actually doing something much more significant. Jesus unites Mary and John in order to make John his brother, right? Another son. Woman, behold your son. And symbolically, in doing this, he makes John a son of God. Why is this significant in John's gospel? It's for this reason that the adoption and sonship of John is revealed at the cross because Christ takes away wrath at the cross. Everything that John has been threading through his gospel is beginning to be shown in the cross and in a moment we'll see at the resurrection. Jesus opens up the way for John to truly believe. Another very subtle hint And this is very subtle, but I think it's very clear of what John is doing in his gospel. John gives us a very subtle hint at the cross, and he highlights that a hyssop branch was raised up to Jesus. Have you ever wondered what a hyssop branch is? A few weeks ago, we talked about this in church, and we we talked about the psalm where David says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. And we noticed how that was actually a reference to the book of Leviticus, where the priest, when he was going to go into a house that was filled with mold and mildew, he had to scrape the walls and remove all the plaster and even take out some of the bricks. And then, after that, if the house was to be clean, they took the blood of a bird and they poured it, broke it, and poured it into a bowl of water, and then took a branch of hyssop, a scarlet thread and cedar wood, bound them together, dipped them in the blood, and then applied it to the house. Why? So that the house could be atoned for, symbolically speaking, that there could be a covering made for the house. Now, the the blood and the hyssop branch are intimately tied to this imagery in the Bible. It's not just Leviticus, although we saw that a few weeks ago. I also want to point that it actually has an even deeper meaning. The foundational meaning of hyssop in the scriptures is for the Passover. In the story of the Exodus, the hyssop branch was used to apply the blood of the Passover to the lintels of the house. A lintel is the, the top beam of a door and the sides. So it's applied to the top beam of the door and the sides. That blood of the Passover lamb is is first immersed uh, with, with water, the hyssop branch goes into it, and then it applies over the house. John the Baptist in John's gospel actually calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So what does John mean? He's, he's identifying the mission of Jesus Christ is going to be the Lamb of God, not just a symbolic Lamb, but the real Lamb and we know from the reading of the text that Christ was crucified during the feast of passover but why is this important why is it important to know that the passover lamb was was applied, that blood of the passover lamb was applied to the door of the lintels is because of what moses told the israelites he told them to choose a lamb for the household he chose a lamb for each household. It was only the blood of the lamb which applied to that household. And if the household was too small, they were allowed to invite a few neighbors to come so that they could all eat the lamb together. The point is this, that the Passover lamb's blood is applied to the household over the father's children. John is highlighting this in his gospel. After the resurrection, Jesus uses the word brothers to refer to the disciples. All of these threads, which John has woven through his gospel, find a magnificent revelation and and resolution in what Jesus says to Mary in these verses. He says to her, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Isn't that amazing what he says here? Jesus, again, he says to Mary, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. There's some, some, uh, there's some sort of dimension of what Jesus is going to do in the ascension that is going to make this more complete. But already Jesus gives Mary a special, a special message to say to the disciples, I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Why is this significant? Why is this significant at all? If you remember, before the crucifixion, Jesus ate bread with the disciples. He inaugurated the Passover with them. And he then began to share the meal with the disciples. After this, he teaches them quite a bit. And not only does he teach them and break bread with them, but he tells them, one of you is going to deny me. But in fact, actually, all of them denied him. You see, before the cross, Jesus lived with these men for three and a half years. And from the history of the Gospels, it's kind of clear, maybe not perfectly clear, but it's kind of clear that Jesus actually knew these people, some of them, even before he called them to be disciples. Some of them come from a, a similar region. He might have known them personally. These men have seen amazing things. Remember back to years past when we've talked about the transfiguration? They see Jesus and all of his glory and Moses and Elijah come. And then Peter says, Lord, we should make three booths for you. We, we, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. See see Peter doesn't understand at this point. Remember when Peter was first called, you are you are Simon but you will be Peter, and then when Simon wonderfully declares to Jesus, you are the Christ, Jesus then speaks back to him and says, and I tell you you are Peter. That wonderful loving reception calling forth of Peter's identity, Jesus was not just the son of God, but to these disciples in a very significant way, he was a father figure. He was showing them not only signs and wonders, but causing them to participate in them. If you've ever seen a miracle take place or ever been involved in praying for someone who then gets healed, think of how much joy that brought you. Yet the disciples for three and a half years had authority that they were given by Jesus to cast out demons, to deliver people, to heal the sick. And it all happened at their hands, often when Jesus wasn't even there. The point is this, after three and a half years of the greatest flawless ministry of teaching signs and wonders that have ever taken place on the earth, all 12 of his apostles completely betray him. One, to a point where he can't be redeemed. The rest of them, to a point that on a human level, there would be no hope for. And at this point, when the disciples are gone, when the disciples have abandoned him, he comes to Mary and he doesn't bring up anything about their prior betrayal. His first words are not, where were you guys? You left me. No, his first words are, go tell my brothers. I'm ascending to my God and to your God. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus is our brother in this sense, that as the mediator, he is perfectly God and perfectly man. And so he is able to call his father, Father but he is also able to call his father God. That on a divine level or on a sonship level, he is related to the father in the perfect harmony and fellowship of the Trinity. But on a human level, we know that our brother, Jesus, is our perfect model of what it looks like for a man to submit to the will of God. That Jesus is demonstrating the wonderful harmony and fellowship and peace in the Trinity that he has accomplished this wrath removal because the father graciously sent him. And the father did not coerce him because he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. The son submitted his will so perfectly that his will became the father's will. And that is why he is able to say to Mary Magdalene, go tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my God and your God my father. And now because of what he's done in the cross, your father. This is exactly what John is trying to do. And he does this by perfectly recording the words of Jesus when he says in this verse, go to my brothers. But notice what happens. Mary Magdalene immediately understands what he's saying. She does not go find the brothers, the siblings of Jesus. She goes to the disciples I think that's significant. I think John is intending for us to see this, that Jesus says, go get my brothers. And she goes and runs to the disciples. Though all of the disciples deserted him, he has already forgiven them. He's already forgiven them when he rises. It is not something that he has to work out. If you've ever been in in my pastoral council, the first thing I have you uh, read whenever I start working with somebody or, or helping them grow is a book that we have called Total Forgiveness Experience. If you've ever read that book, if you've ever walked through the process of forgiving people who've grievously wounded you, think about this, how much more it would have been if that person would have left you for dead. And not just that person, really indeed all of his disciples. But as we saw on Friday, it wasn't just his disciples. As Pilate told Jesus during the interrogations, the Jews, your nation, and your priesthood delivered you up. To put it humbly, you've never had a problem with forgiveness on that level. But look at what Jesus does in these words. There's no hint of any sort of guilt, shame, manipulation. He says, my brother's. These are my brothers. The book of Hebrews tells us he was not ashamed to call them his brothers. He receives them as brothers saying, my father and your father, my God and your God. Furthermore, not only does John show us this great theme being woven and being put together. Remember what we talked about, adoption, that is the act or process of someone being a child of wrath or a child of the devil and now becoming a child of God, he, he marries adoption, atonement, and belief. And look at what John does as he's writing his gospel. He provides some summary statements that we understand that he is saying that the disciples only believed Jesus after the resurrection, because the resurrection accomplished something. In the cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2, Christ first cleanses the temple, and then they ask him, what, if, what sign do you do to show that you have the authority to cleanse the temple? Jesus then responds that if you tear down this temple, that his body, after three days I will rise it up. And John, when he's writing his gospel, provides a summary statement after recording that event, And he says that the disciples only believe after. If you've ever uh, done any sort of history or reading of the Gospels, one of the things that is important to understand is this notion called the criterion of embarrassment. Now, you don't have to remember that. I promise you there will be no test. But the criterion of embarrassment is a very powerful tool. The reason it's a very powerful tool is this. Think about if you're in the early church and you're John the Apostle and you want to write your gospel to give to the churches to be grace to them, for it to be helpful to them, and you have any sort of understanding of what's going on, you might include embellishments. For example, at, you know, at this point, all the disciples were believing and doing amazing things, and they never sinned, and they never got it wrong. But actually, when you read the Gospels, they are filled with things that an, in a dishonest author would never highlight. I was sharing my testimony last night very briefly with a few people, and I intentionally reviewed it in an elliptical fashion. A, because we didn't have that much time, but B, on a human level, I don't, I don't want to go into that much detail of my prior sins. The reason why is it, it brings shame in a sense. Not that I should have been you know, expected to be better back then or what have you. The point is that I ellipticized the, the message. I, I truncated it, not to tell a lie, but just to highlight certain things. The point is that the gospel writers don't do this at all. They actually tell us over and over again that their belief was accomplished after the resurrection look at this in John 2:22 therefore when he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken it's not just here in John 2 it's not just one place it's actually over and over again in John's comments after the recording of the triumphal entry he shows the outcome of the glorification that is the cross and the empty tomb are one act in John, it says, Jesus over and over again says, now is the hour for the son of man to be glorified. And John then uses that term, the glorification of Jesus Christ was the greatest humbling of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was glorifying the name of the father. And the father said, I will continue to glorify it. Verse 16 of John 12, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What is this about? It's the criteria of embarrassment. That is, if John is telling the truth, we can know this, not just because it's the scriptures, but also he includes something that a normal human author or someone who's not willing to tell the full truth, not willing to be a good witness. In a court of law, they have to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. John tells the whole truth. He says something took place In the resurrection, that they believed after the resurrection. Though potentially embarrassing, John actually records these things to encourage us to believe. At the end of our reading today in John 20, we we only got to verse 18, but then at the end of that chapter, John gives another summary statement of why he wrote the gospel. He says, These things were written so that you may believe and believing you may have life in his name. John is doing this entirely clearly. So why is all of this important? We haven't talked really about Christ triumphing over death, or Christ defeating the powers, or Christ being the promise of our future resurrection. Brothers and sisters, you've probably heard messages on that your whole life. Those are vital and important things, and they are foundational to the core of what the resurrection accomplishes but it does so much more than just promise that one day you'll be resurrected. It does so much more than just say that you can have peace with God and go to heaven one day. The resurrection is the proof. It's the manifestation. It's the revelation that you've been adopted by the Father. Knowledge of the historical facts of the resurrection are not enough for belief. It, this was mentioned during the Sunday school hour, if you've ever shared the gospel with someone and you've taken them through all of the historical facts that you know the disciples attested in multiple places and the gospel writers include such facts as the women coming first, which again would be somewhat embarrassing in that cultural context because women were not treated rightly in the larger culture. They were treated as secondary witnesses. They weren't the same caliber as men. So the fact that the gospel writers show that women came first and they were the first ones to tell the disciples is an embarrassing fact. Nevertheless, it's an embarrassing fact in that culture. It's not an embarrassing fact in God's culture. Nevertheless, they recorded it. So after sharing with people all of these facts about, you know, there are multiple non-scriptural historians who tell us about the life of Jesus and that he's a historical figure, and the disciples went through extreme persecution such that they were deeply encouraged to recant their testimony, and that none of them did. Even after covering all of that ground with an unbeliever, it is very often the case that they have no desire to change nor to believe at all. Why is that? The reason that is, is that those who are convinced of sin and the reality of the cross of the tomb still lack a vital ingredient, a vital component of the faith that is necessary to believe is that the gospel is a free offer of grace. It's an invitation to be reconciled. You see, the Christian faith is not a works-based religion. You cannot read your Bible enough to be loved by God. You cannot do enough Things to be loved by God. You cannot attend church long enough to be loved by God. If you do not yet know the Lord and are trying to approach Christ in this manner, you don't know what He's saying. He's saying something so precious and clear here. What you need to see is not just the historical fact, although our faith is rooted in historical events, you don't just need to be convinced of your need for sin. You need a message of reconciliation. I, I've never actually done this, but I actually want to apologize for missing something in prior sermons. We talked a few weeks ago about the Valley of Dry Bones. If you were here, you might remember that. I showed how the Valley of Dry Bones was a picture that Ezekiel gave to the nation to say that these dry bones were actually the whole nation. It was the spiritual state of the people. And I... I kind of hammered over and over again on the importance of that image as telling us about what sin is. But what I really failed to mention, what I failed to highlight adequately, although I saw it, I didn't spay it enough and clearly enough, is that if you think you're dry bones, what you really need to believe in is the power for the dry bones to not become dry, but to become alive. The point is that the, the dry bones, knowledge of dry bones doesn't get you to life. It is the power of God, it is the reconciliation offered by the Father through his Son that is the necessary ingredient to believe. You see, Elijah is not just giving an indication to Israel that things are really bad. At this point, Israel is under judgment. They know things are really bad. You probably, if you have any sense of the reality of God working in your life, if you have not yet been made a new creation in Christ, you probably have at least a smidgen of understanding that things are really bad. <laughs> things aren't going well in my life. Things aren't, aren't I'm, not, I'm not submitted to God's ways. I don't know God. The heavens feel like bronze when I pray. God never seems to encourage me. Brothers and sisters, as much as you need a, an understanding of your sin, and as great as that is in the foundation of the gospel, if you do not bring people past that, if you do not come past that, you will never believe it all. The one who comes out of the grave comes out ready to receive those who betray him. His words concerning adoption, my God, your God, my Father, your Father, those words are what John is talking about in John 14, that he brought He not only dwelt among us, he not only tabernacled among us, but his words were gracious. Psalm 45 talks about the the Christ as the one who has lips that have grace poured on them, such that when he speaks, everything is, is flavored with grace. Everything is tainted with grace, so to speak. Christ's words of reconciliation make the Father known. That is what John is saying in John 1.18, that he revealed him. That is that the son revealed the father. And that is exactly what Christ is doing. Christ said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, right? You remember that at the, at the, um, one of the teachings? And we might rightly expand on that and say, if we've heard him, we've heard the father. So I have three questions to you today. First is, are you convinced of the facts of the resurrection, but are you still thinking that your sins are too heavy to be forgiven? Think about this. You know the resurrection is true. You know that Jesus really was a person. You have some elements of grace and faith operating in your life, but you're still unconvinced. How can the atonement work for me? how can I really be loved by the Father? Maybe you even think that the atonement can work. You can one day go to heaven. You can have the hope of resurrection, but you don't have any understanding of how far the salvation of God wants to come to you because you don't have the belief that I can really truly be forgiven and I can really become adopted. You see, the problem with our culture today is not just that we have divorce at a rampant level, and sexual immorality at a rampant level, and all other forms of wickedness at a rampant level, but what they're doing to the souls of men and women at a generational level is we're, we're beginning to reap the seeds of divorce in broken hearts everywhere. If you're hearing me right now, you probably have what psychologists and, and pastors like to call father wounds. You have this deep ache in your heart because your father was an imperfect person and even if your parents were never divorced or had any sort of problems you have these sort of problems you have father wounds because every human father is limited and in some ways somewhat broken you have to be reconciled to not only what jesus says my god and your god you also need to be reconciled to my father and your father That's exactly what Jesus is opening up in these passages. Do you believe, have you become a new creation, but you now, because of the work of the evil one, you now feel like you are trapped in unrepentant and gross sins. Brothers and sisters, Christians can do horrible things. Because you are a new creation, you have a new destiny, and you have a new nature, but you still have ongoing corruption, and you are still prone to gross horrific temptations and sins. If you are at this point in your walk, you feel like, I know the Lord a little bit, I've grown a little bit, but I don't really know if I can make any progress. I don't know if I really want to give this up. And even if I did, it's so horrible that I could not only never tell another person, if I could never tell another person, then I certainly couldn't be honest with God. Brothers and sisters, remember Peter. Simon Peter should become your greatest friend. Not only did he tell Jesus that he would never betray him, he actually betrayed him so strongly that in Peter's condemnation of the fact that he didn't know Christ, he called down a curse upon himself and said, I have never met him. I do not know him. What did Jesus say eternal life was? It was knowing him. Peter said he denied Jesus. He was so afraid of Jesus that he was willing to risk his eternal destiny and soul. He was willing to suffer the, the wrath of God and being separated from God than to suffer the scorn of men or possibly the persecution that might've fallen on him that night that Christ was betrayed. The point is this, that Peter was reconciled to Jesus. I love this. John 21, if, you, if you're there, I really encourage you. John 21, is your, it's your home base. Look at what Jesus does for Peter in this past. And then finally, do you trust in Christ but fear that you are not accepted by the Father? John's whole point is that he's my Father and your Father. He's just as much the Father of the Son as he is the Father of you if you've been made a new creation in Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gems and diamonds that are in your scripture Lord, we thank you for the clear sense that Jesus is describing his love of these disciples. But Lord, we also ask that you by your spirit would work it in and work it through our lives like leaven works its way through the whole lump, that you would pervade our lives, that this would be actually the beginning of a season for us, both individually and as a people of a radical encounter with the knowledge of your love as the Father, that you would show us Christ's kind heart of reconciliation, that he is offering reconciliation to not just sinners, but people who had betrayed him grievously. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would make these things known. As Paul says in Romans 8, that it is only by your spirit that we can cry Abba. So we pray for that gracious gift today. Oh Lord, would you make us new in you? Would we be able to, like Mary, hear these words, my brothers, and, and truly feel them? In Jesus' mighty name, amen.